There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Have you ever looked up from your desk at work and thought, is this all worth it? The grind, the pathway to purported success in D.C. Work long and hard and succeed. It's a question Luke Russert asked himself years ago. At some point, you have to say, all right, this is a pretty fast hamster wheel. Is it one that I want to stay on and am I doing it for the right reason? Luke answered this question by leaving D.C. entirely and along with it, a successful career as an NBC News correspondent. Morning, folks. Welcome to the briefing on shift by MSNBC. I'm Luke Russer with your Monday look at what's happening in Washington and politics across. He then traveled to six continents and 67 plus countries. In his New York Times bestselling book, Look For Me There, Luke chronicles his quarter life crisis, if you will, his travels and ultimately his journey through grief of losing his beloved father. I'm Tom Brokaw, NBC News, and it is my sad duty to report this afternoon that my friend and colleague, Tim Russert, the moderator of Meet the Press and NBC's Washington bureau chief, collapsed and died early this afternoon while at work at the NBC News Bureau in Washington. Luke comes on the show to tell us what he's learned. Luke, welcome to the DMV Download Podcast. It's good to be here, Luke. So in your book, Look For Me There, spirituality, mortality, nepotism, mental health, and obviously travel are topics that you cover head on. And you cover them, you know, really honestly. After reading the book, I was just struck with the, you know, brutal honesty you took on each of those subjects. And something else really hit me, which is it's also, ironically, kind of a local story. You know, even though you travel the world to investigate yourself, the world itself, you know, there's all these mentions of Rock Creek Park, you know, Steak and Egg Diner, the beloved <laughs> Diner, um, you know, Holy Trinity Church. There are all these local places that you mention. And beyond that, you know, you start off the book by facing an existential question that so many eager, ambitious young people in their 20s and 30s face, which is, you know, is all this work I'm doing in D.C., the nation's capital, worth this grind, you know, worth my life, really. So to start off, can you take us back to how you really faced that question that so many of us are facing now and how you answered it? It's a great question. I think what a lot of people in the outside world don't understand is that Washington, D.C., more so than most cities, really operates on the backs of kids in their 20s and young and young people in their 30s. Part of that's because of the pay structure on Capitol Hill. Part of that is that you need that energy in order to be in those federal types of jobs and, and positions. Mm. Um, and it's something which, as a young man, I really gravitated to, especially on Capitol Hill. I was a history major in college, and I loved being in the Capitol every single day because I had a front row seat to the history, and I got to work with all these primary source documents all, all the time. So that was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. But I do think, especially in these technologically advanced times that we live in, where there is such a need for content, uh, there's there's a, such a, uh, the term is interconnectedness, 
in the sense that you're never really fully untethered from a smartphone or from the responsibilities of a job. Mm. Uh, I think that wears on people. And I think that also, especially for younger people, it it sometimes stops you from having those moments of uh, introspection and self-reflection of, am I doing this because it makes me happy? Am I doing this for prestige? Am I doing this because it just sort of seems like what I should be doing or it's the right fit? And I think Washington is is subject to more of those types of questions, perhaps from its working population than a lot of other cities. And it was certainly like that for me. And I think one of the things that also happens in Washington, especially if you work in the federal side, uh, and even in, in local politics as well, is you get caught up in the excitement of it. Yeah. I think sometimes it's worthwhile to have that reset, which you realize that you know, there's always going to be another election. There's always going to be another must-pass bill. Mm. Um, and at some point you have to say, all right, this is a pretty fast hamster wheel. Uh, is it one that I want to stay on and am I doing it for the right reasons? And that was the question I ultimately asked myself when I was about to turn 30, which I thought was old at the time, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you realized that uh, I, need, I needed a break. Right. And I don't want to give away too much of you know the book, which I encourage everyone to read. But, you know, there was this kind of scene where you were pulled into, you know, the speaker's kind of offer speaker banner at the time. Can you give us kind of a taste of that, you know, interaction and where that led you ultimately? So I covered Capitol Hill for the entirety of my 20s. And you develop relationships with a lot of the people that you cover. And I covered Boehner rather aggressively because his House Republican conference at the time was uh, more unruly than <laughs> it was quite unruly. Not as much now, believe it or not. But then it was right. considered to be new, new, new age that this was such an unruly re- Republican conference. And he stopped me in the hallway. He said, hey, I want you I, I want you to come to my office. And I want to talk to you. And I thought that he was going to chew me out for coverage, which often happens. And right. a politician will say, you should have covered this or you didn't get my side of the story, et cetera. So I was expecting one of those types of meetings. And I walked in there and he was smoking a camel cigarette. And he goes, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, will you call me into your office? What do you mean what am I doing? He goes, well, what are you doing here on Capitol Hill? Because I've seen people be here 20, 30, 40 years, uh, time's a flat circle. Never really know what uh, if this is what they wanted to do, that they just sort of fell into it uh, because there is such a cycle. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's very easy to lose sight of who you are individually or ultimately w- learn another skill set. Right. And his advice was was very straightforward. It's like, just, you know, it's okay because you, there's a lot of people who do quite well here and you, you could do that if you want, but just make sure it is what you in fact want because you don't want to wake up years down the road being like, wow, was this really it? And it was interesting because I those those thoughts have been floating around in my mind and he was sort of a perfect messenger because of the similarities he had growing up to my father. He also came from a large Catholic family uh, in the Rust Belt first members uh, of their families to go to college. They worked odd jobs to pay for tuition. So uh, it wasn't somebody who, as a young guy, I was going to be like, okay, shut up, old man. Don't tell me what you to, to do. It was right, like, right, okay, right. this is a pretty reasoned uh, person outside of the fact that he's second in line to the presidency and sort of a top Mount Olympus, if you will. And right. that only made it all the more interesting, right? Here's somebody you can see uh, the valley down below and is going, you know, it's not all rosy up here as you might think. It's a tough time. And it's kind of prescient considering where politics went after it. Right. And, you know, you took that advice, that situation, that scene, and you kind of gave it all away. 
you gave away a very prominent career, you know, a, a top NBC News, not a top, but, you know, pretty high up there. Now that you look back on it, you know, are you glad you did? Yeah, it was unexpected, I think, for a lot of people because I kept it really close to the vest. And yeah. I was on an upward trajectory. I'd uh, gotten some nice accolades. You know, I won an Emmy. I was uh, a very dependable network correspondent who could cover politics and campaigns and the occasional hurricane or blizzard or <laughs> whatever event they needed. And I think for a lot of folks, especially because of the, my lineage, there's this idea of, oh, well, this is what Luke will do. And that's the Russert name. And they will yeah. kind of continue upward and onward. And I didn't really tell a lot of people that I was having doubts about the position. One, because people in media leak, as you know. But then also, <laughs> I didn't quite know if I was ready to leave. It was something I had to mull over. Yeah, And what ended up getting me out the door was I had been working on an issue on a veterans bill in Congress, and I was excited to report it and present it. And it got bumped for uh, Donald Trump's reaction to the shooting death of Harambe the gorilla. So mm. that was the moment where I felt the universe was perhaps pushing me in a certain direction. Right. Uh, but I think a lot of people were surprised, and I was probably a little bit surprised myself that I actually did it. But I don't regret that decision at all. I think it was one of the most consequential ones I've, I've ever made in my life and probably one of the best ones. And mainly the reason is, is that it allowed me an opportunity to work through some issues that had I not done that, I wouldn't be as happy of a person or as fulfilled as a person, but in, in, even as, as worthwhile to a cause. Uh, is I, I think you really have to take some time for some self-diagnostic checks and some self-care to put forward the best version of yourself out into the world. Mm, mm. And you, know, you mentioned your lineage and you know uh, your father, You know Tim Russer was a TV giant and your beloved father. And you know his death obviously is what this book is really also about moving through, you know, that grief. Can you tell us about how that thread has sewn its way through your travels and where you are now? So when I left NBC, I decided to do some traveling, maybe six months to a year. I had the opportunity. My mom had encouraged me to travel for quite a long time. She was a Peace Corps volunteer. So she always said there was a real value in travel because you could measure yourself up against the world. And I started to do it. I just fell in love with it. I liked learning about new cultures. I felt that each place I became more enlightened. I learned a lot about different faiths. I learned a lot about different types of government structures and how things work, et cetera. And so it was, it was for a long period of time, it was, it was really worthwhile. And I would journal throughout this period. And I went through a difficult period in 2018, about two years after the travels had begun. And I went back to review the journals. And when I reviewed the journals, I realized that I was doing two things uh, subconsciously, if you will. Hmm. I was searching for something, hence the title, Look For Me There. And that was ultimately to be my own person, independent of my father, and almost to some degree asking for permission uh, in, hmm. in, in a way. And I was also running away from something. And that was running away from the grief of losing my father and trying to process that. I never did it as a young man in my early 20s. Part of the reason why is I thought if I did focus on that grief, then I would have to acknowledge that he was really gone. Uh, and I did I think what a lot of young men do, which is store and ignore, uh, which is right. much easier than have to being admit to being vulnerable and um, work through things that are uncomfortable. It's easier to throw yourself into work, throw yourself into a cause, whatever it is you want to do. Mm. So I did that. But part of what 
the book allowed me to do was take uh, a moment to put these reflections together, uh, make sense out of them, and ultimately identify those through lines and, and get to a, to a place of, of understanding and peace regarding my father's death. And then also uh, the very unique, <laughs> intense journey at times that, that, that I took uh, after he died. So let's talk about those, you know, actual travels um, that you took yeah. around the world. You know, I, I made a list of them and I was like, I might as well just say world because you kind of covered, <laughs> covered a lot of ground there. Yeah, six continents and 67 plus countries. I don't mention all of them in the book, just the ones that uh, made the most impact on me. But there's, there's a lot there. You can always go to my website if you want to read all about them. <laughs> totally. And, you know, now you know, a few years out, you know, which places still kind of whisper to you, still are stuck with you? I'm sure all of them, but... I'm sure also a few stand out. Easter Island is a place I think about a lot. Uh, the most remote inhabited place on earth is what it's called. Five and a half hour plane ride off the coast of Chile. And it has those very enchanting, almost mystical stone heads that have been placed all around the island. No one quite knows how they were able to be uh, constructed and put up with such primitive tools. There's even a belief of folks on island on the island that aliens did it, which I don't subscribe to. But hey, nowadays with all these UFOs, you never know. Um, they're out there, right? So that's a place I think about often. It was also a very special place for me because hey, it's so remote. And the plane that drops you off, it, it it leaves relatively quickly after it drops you off. And the whole island shakes because it's so small and the plane is so big. And I remember watching the plane leave and just going out into the town and being like, man, I am really, really out here in the middle of nowhere. Like right. it'd be, the phrase fits, if you will. So that's a place I think that I still think about a lot to this day. I would like to get back to mm-hmm. Vietnam was very powerful for me mainly because my parents had spoken about Vietnam so much around the dinner table growing up. It right. seemed to be the center point of all the boomer-related conversations. <laughs> uh, my mom you know, opposed the war, as did my father. My dad got a student deferment. My mom you know, marched and everything. So you know, everything would tie back to Vietnam. Mm. And I was so curious about it. And I went there, and you, I think you go in with this idea of, oh, it's going to be like Apocalypse Now, or it's going to be like Full Metal Jacket or Platoon or something. And it's like the nicest people in this beautiful country that's relatively capitalist now under their communist system, all similar to China. So there's an Under Armour factory, and they're selling refrigerators, and you're just sort of like... This was the ground zero for capitalism versus communism for all those years. This is this <laughs> is really weird. Wow, this is this is strange. So that was it, it was really illuminating because it 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 sounds just so basic, but uh, I think one of the things that it, you you can relate to this as a journalist. There's no substitute for being on the ground or witnessing something yourself and actually feeling it yourself mm-hmm. and being able to contextualize it yourself. Uh, and for me, that was Vietnam. I, I had a completely new perspective. Uh, the historical sites there are really well kept up. I got to explore them. And I really was able to mesh uh, one of these uh, chapters in American history uh, and, and understand it in my own way, with, with my own understanding as, a, as an amateur historian and, and come away uh, much more enlightened. And the last one I'll say is I went to Senegal and I saw a place called the Door of No Return, which is this uh, island called Gore Island, which is really the focal point of slavery in the sense of this is where the ships went out from Mm. to bring slaves to uh, the Western world. And that was a deeply impactful, powerful place that I had long wanted to visit because I think 
you know, one of the things with slavery is we're still very much suffering from America's mortal sin and figuring out our way forward. It might be hundreds of years before we ever get to a real place of peace on that. I mean, we, we still have a long ways to go. And when you see it there, and it's just, it, it, it's painfully economical. And what I mean by that, it's just like, it, it you can just sort of see how human beings were really made into um, uh, goods, if you will. Mm. And it's in and, and that just it it's so it it kills you to see that. It's it's so painful and hurtful. And for me, I had always associated water my entire life as a sort of place of peace, place of calm. Because you know, oh. a storm would come, but then the sun rises and the water calms. And right. there's the most beautiful water there in Gore Island in Senegal. And you hear these stories about people who tr- who literally jumped off the boat to drown so they wouldn't have to go into slavery. And for the first time in my life, water became dark. And water became uh, unpleasant, and uh, I was very fortunate to have that experience because I think it it sheds light on it just what literally happened in the moment and um, how people were made into commodities. And it's just mm. it's it's awful, and 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 we, we we can't turn off that history. We have to be very mindful of it. We've been hearing from Luke Russer, author of the now New York Times bestselling book "Look for Me There." A story about travel, but also about how he grieved the death of his father, the late Tim Russert, a TV news giant who died at the young age of 58. After the break, Luke and I talk about the importance of being alone and how easy it is to be distracted from those most important things in life. And we're back with Luke Russer, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Look For Me There. So Luke, something that also really stuck out to me when reading your book is at every location that you traveled to, you would always make time to kind of scurry away and, you know, be alone. How important is this idea of aloneness, you know, in your personal journey of reflection and grief? I'm a big believer and proponent of the power of aloneness. Uh, It's not for everybody. I was an only child, so it's probably easier for me. (laughs) But I do think, especially in this world that we live in, where there's notifications for everything, you're inundated left and right with um, news or things that you're supposed to want or things that you're supposed to need or someone's issues or uh, reminders, uh, just to be able to, 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 to turn things off and sit within your own thoughts, especially in a different environment. Um, I think it lends itself to bouts of creativity. It lends itself to bouts of, of real introspection and an understanding of oneself. Um, I, I, one of the things I tell people is I'm incredibly privileged to be able to travel the way I did. I understand that. But I think one of the things that is universal is making that time for yourself and whether it's walking in the woods for one hour without your phone, there's just such a benefit to that. And I don't think we push ourselves in that direction enough. Now I think that um, a lot of all these things, Oh, you know, you could put a timer on your app on the phone. So you don't, right. you don't scroll Instagram all day. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> sort of like, it, it's self-serving. It's like, well, if I'm not on Instagram, then I'll be on email, right? It's like, right. there's got to be a more of a movement to put the phone down. Yeah. And then people, 
you know, hey, if I don't text you back in five minutes, it's not because I was kidnapped. It's just like I'm trying to meditate here for a second, right? Like, relax. No, there is an aversion. There is like a serious yeah. cultural aversion. There is an aversion to putting the phone down, and yeah. you read all about it. It's like um, I do some work with my high school, and one of the things that they were talking about is, you know, they were they were taking phones away from kids for studying, and they said that the kids actually didn't mind it because they were able to focus more. It was the parents because the parents were afraid. Like, well, what if I can't get in touch with my Whoa. kid? And, and in my mind, I go, you realize like <laughs> you, you there's a receptionist at the school then you call the receptionist and the receptionist walks down to the classroom and right. says, you know, Hey, little Johnny needs to call his mom right now. That system worked really well for 40 years. Like, I think we're okay. You don't have to be in right. constant text communication with your kid. My goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. That's really yeah. real. And, you know, similar to this idea of aloneness is also kind of this idea of spirituality. And if, you know, your book is about a physical journey, it's also about, you know, a spiritual journey. The verse that, you know, comes up again and again is by both of our namesake. Too much Thanks. is given, yes. much is expected. Luke 12, 48. How has the meaning of that verse changed since you were 22 until now? That verse was haunting for me for many years. It was something my dad used to say all the time. Uh, it was this idea of, to me of a real expectation that because of the hard work of your grandfather, a World War II veteran who worked as a sanitation worker and a truck driver for 40 years, worked two jobs and take any sick days, that he instilled that value of hard work into me as your father. And I was the first member of my family to go to college. I bettered myself. So it was this sort of idea of each generation is building on the back of the last one and to project mm. on forward. So I always took it to mean like, you, you must do great things. And then as I sat with it and started to think about it more and applied the message to what I had seen around the world, I realized that it wasn't so much as my father trying to put pressure on me. It was the idea of that if you live an honorable life, if you're a good human being, a kind human being, uh, and you do your best and you lift, you, you reach down to lift up others or uh, you have a sense of purpose and, and, and you're, you're, you're trying, then that's, that, that's meeting expectation. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be president of the United States. You don't have to do these <laughs> great and grand things. And my dad said that I just didn't understand it in that way for many years. Mm. Um, and I think that's important because I think a lot of sons, they, they try to live up to their fathers. They uh, try to manage the, that duty with their right. own desires and there's expectation and there's pressure. And there's a lot of people in the public that'll just, and, and they say it very kindly, right? It's like, Oh, you have a great voice. So your eyes look like your father and you're yeah. going to do great things. Or we expect a lot out of you. And I struggled with that for many years. I mean, I would go to a, coffee shop and someone would recognize me and they'd be like, Oh, well, we expect a lot out of you. <laughs> Who are you? Like, you know, like whoa. Yeah, whoa, okay. And then I realized, oh, I expect a lot out of myself and I'll try my best, but thank you. Um, and I and I, I think our generation is, is aware of that and aware of the sort of there's a the value add of just being nice mm. <laughs> and respectful. Mm. And it's funny yeah. you mentioned the generation thing. You know, I think your story is very notably like kind of a millennial. I don't know. I just get that sense, you know, uh, of just searching and wanting, you know, more and grappling with these heavy traditions of either guilt or responsibility that, you know, maybe former generations kind of had instilled in a uh, in a stronger sense. It's almost kind of like a, a generational piece in of itself. 
it's a very astute observation. I'm happy you read it that way. It may have been right. intentionally written to that idea. And I think it's true. And I think that's something which has been really interesting uh, so far now to, with the feedback that I've gotten. Yeah. I've had a lot of old folks who picked up the book, uh, whether it was nostalgia for my father and were very interested. And they wrote me very kind notes. And a lot of them have to do with the amount of time it took for them to process their grief. Uh, but then a lot of them are, are are honing in on exactly what you said, which is, you know, my uh, greatest generation parent had these expectations for me and I was not able not able to necessarily meet them or I sort of went off on my own path and did my own thing. And mm. you sort of see that there is this connective tissue between generations, especially, I think, in our new media age where people are exposed to so many different things so quickly. Right. Um, and there's so much more opportunity than there ever was before. And we're so much more transient than we ever were before. Uh, where people have wrestled with these questions, so it's it's been really interesting to 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 see that and feel it firsthand. And as far as my own writing goes, I think that's something that a lot of millennials struggle with because yeah, it's sort of like, well, we have these expectations for you, and it's very hard for millennials to come back and say, but the opportunities aren't the same. You right. know, you look at like home ownership is a great example. Like what? millennials can't get a home in a major city anymore. Yeah. To, not not close to the level what their parents were able to do, right? Mm -hmm. And we can bring in liberals and conservatives to have a debate about why that is and the mm -hmm. economic ramifications about things, et cetera. It doesn't take away from what the truth is, which is that it's it's very difficult. Yeah. And so when you have these changes in society, it's going to change somebody's mental psyche and and how they uh, approach things and whatnot. It's an it's an important thing to keep an eye on and, and be mindful of. And I think parents that do that, uh, they've gone a long way. Mm. How do you deal with critiques of nepotism? You know, I think it's something that you talk about in the book so honestly. It's your it's your greatest asset, but it's also your greatest liability. And I in my 20s, I would get mad um, because I think a lot of people would sometimes take unfair shots at me, mm. but I was, I realized why, I mean, I understood I, it's no, like, it totally yeah, you're an easy target. You have a target on your back. It's going to come in. Don't get too mad about it, but you have to work twice as hard. Now you have to prove them wrong. And that's a very powerful fuel, but I think what's hard and what a lot of people don't understand, and they don't have sympathy for, I understand why they don't have sympathy for, I'm, I'm, I have that self-awareness, but you're sort of damned if you do don't damned if you don't. And I mean by that is if you do reach a level of success, there's always going to be somebody that said, well, the door was open for you and you had opportunities. So you, that's what you should have done. Right. And then if you fail spectacularly, the flip side is like, well, you never should have been there to begin with. Right. So right. it's very, very hard. Yeah. And I think the people that really do the best are the ones that sort of keep a good head on their shoulders. And I always looked at the Manning family because I thought that, that was sort of the three ways of going about it. You have mm. Peyton Manning who's like, I have to be better than my father and I'm going to work harder than my father and I'm going to compete against my father. Like literally, I have to be the best of all time. Right, right. Then you have Eli that's more sort of even keel, which is like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do the best that I can. Uh, I'm going to work hard, have a good time, be a good yeah. player. And then you have Cooper who's like, you know, I'm just, I'm here for the ride. Like, I'm just I'm happy. Like, this is a really nice yeah. position. Like, I'm not going to rock the boat too much. Right. Yeah. And so those are, it, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing. I don't like, I'm not a martyr about it, I'm, but I do think for a lot of people, it's, it leads to questions of self-doubt. It leads to, am I doing this for me? Am I doing it for him? Or, uh, am I good enough? You know, and, and you have to reach your own place of peace with that. I think for me, 
uh, I got to a, a place where you couldn't honestly be critical of the job performance at certain points. Like I'm a very solid player. I'm not an all-star, but to make a right. baseball analogy, like I'm hitting 275 with hundred RBI and 20 home runs. All right. So like, <laughs> that, that's good enough for me right now. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Father's Day is upon us. And your book, you know, does start with uh, mentioning that your father's favorite, you know, holiday was, you know, Father's Day. You released this yeah. book. This is the first, you know, Father's Day when your book is out there and so many people have read it and enjoyed it. How are you feeling about, you know, that day? You know, I used to be very fearful of Father's Day. It was a difficult day. And I think for the three anniversaries, whether it's his birthday, the date of his passing, and Father's Day, it was always the hardest one. I think part of that was uh, something as simple as Father's Day sales with stores, like putting those images front and center. And then that's magnified by social media uh, and what comes through there. But this year, and in, in, in the last few years, I was fortunate enough to be a godfather, um, mm. and I've got to to have interactions with my friends, kids, and that's been neat. I'm much more of a place of peace. And, and one of the things I say about I say in the book is, it took me many years to get here, but I, I do think that our lost loved ones would more so than anything really want us to be happy when we think about them, not beset by pain and anguish and sadness. And so on Father's Day now, uh, especially with the way this book has resonated and and, it, and I feel like it's helped the people, it's just puts a smile on my face. And I, I know my father would be happy. And um, I just and, and I like hanging out with the, the little kids, too. It's sort of like full circle, circle of life. So but it, it took me a while to get there. And, yeah. and I do think it's important that we as a society are, are mindful of how difficult Father's Day and Mother's Day can be for a lot of people. Not even if, they, if it's lost, because some people have strained relationships with their their parents and whatnot. And uh, I'm happy that in the last few years we've gotten to a place where we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, it wasn't like it wasn't always like that. So that's been that's been really positive. Mm, so now you know you have a New York Times bestselling book. You know what's next? I, I'm sure you've gotten that question so many times. But uh, when you look out, you know, mm -hmm. sure, what do you see? I like the storytelling space. One of the things that I learned traveling the world is that we seem to contextualize things in black and white. I think the world really lives in the gray. There's a lot of nuance there. I kind of want to tell those nuanced stories, whether it's writing another book, whether it's podcast, documentary, film, something in that space. I think that's where I'm, I'm a good communicator. That's my own egotistical comment to toot my own horn, but that's <laughs> what I sort of realized. Like you got, you're yeah. blessed with some skills in life and for whatever reason, that was the one I was blessed with. So uh, I intend to make use of it in some way, but one of the things that I'm very thankful for and I'm and and to to you know pun intended to preach my own gospel, the gospel of Luke, which you can appreciate, is <laughs> there's we, we put such an impetus on rushing, right, into something and making a, a good, well-informed decision and taking some time to mull things over is not a bad thing. Um I, I've benefited from it and I encourage people to do it, especially by the ocean. You like to surf too. There's there's, <laughs> there's a yeah, there's there's a wonderful prop there's wonderful properties in in the, the waves and the tide. Yeah, for sure. Uh, man. Nothing better. Thank you so much for making the time for uh, for me, our listeners, um, to really you know tell your story and give it to us all. You know, in this book, it's a real treat. And thank you again. No, thanks so much for having me, Luke. I appreciate it, and, and good of you to do wonderful things in your hometown. Um, it's, uh, we need more of you. 
And that'll do it for us today here on the DMV Download Podcast. Thanks so much for listening and let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you really like what you're hearing here on the DMV Download Podcast, tell a friend, a family member, a stranger, spread the word. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Online at WTOP.com and, of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week and maybe take some time away from that phone if you can. I know I'll be trying. See you Wednesday.